We'll be reading again from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through verse 6 of chapter 3. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafted than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, was with her and he ate okay so this is week two of our focus on masculinity and femininity so let me pray for us and we will dive into the text and get to work on this sermon father in heaven thank you that you have spoken to us and spoken to us clearly lord as i prayed last week i think about just the reality again you are the same yesterday and today and forevermore You haven't given us sand to build our house upon. You've given us a solid rock that won't shift, won't be supporting us today and then tomorrow not there. Lord, we don't have one idea of gender today and then another idea tomorrow. Lord, we won't build our lives upon one truth today and then have to rebuild in 10 years or 20 years. Lord, your word is truth You have spoken the truth. You have given your people the truth. 
And I pray, Lord God, you would teach us how to build our house upon the solid rock of Christ. And Lord Jesus, when you have died on the cross, you died to reconcile us to God, and you also died, Lord God, to restore everything to its intended purpose. And you tell us your intended purpose in Scripture. In Genesis 2, Lord, you show us what you've intended in creation, and you show us, Lord Jesus, what you have died to restore creation to. So I pray, Lord, that you would give your people eyes to see And no matter what our culture around us says about these things, Lord, I pray that you would drown out all of the crowd noise right now and let us hear your voice and only your voice. I pray, Lord God, for every way that we have capitulated to the culture, Lord, that you would cleanse our minds and that you would help us to renew our minds, Lord God, and that we would be transformed because of it. So please, Lord God, take this word, take your word, and wash our minds clean again, Lord, for all of the ways that we've picked up ideas that are really not from you. And I pray, Lord, that we would take everything that we know about ourselves and everything that we know about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, Lord, and that we would filter it through your holy word, because only your word is truth, and only your word is timeless, and only you are the same when you wrote it and in today, and then also for tomorrow. So please go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to ask you if you've ever seen a movie or some kind of a TV show where there's a woman who's a hero, and not just any old hero, but a particular one dressed very attractively, dressed even provocatively, doing incredible martial arts, kicking some serious tail in combat-style fighting, and on top of it all, perhaps doing so to protect a man, perhaps even an effeminate man, a a deferent male. Have you ever seen anything like that? I know I sure have, and I've seen a lot more of it. There's a steady influx of that. One of the movies that comes to mind was the Lego movie part two. I don't know if you've ever seen it. We went to the movie theaters to see it, and I'm not sure why, actually. Now, my desire here, this is a popular movie, right? It's a popular movie. Millions of kids are influenced by it, adults that see it with their kids, right? Um, You know, I I don't mean to... I don't mean to bash the movie or critique our culture to show how, say, evil it has become or how controversial it has become. But my intention is to wrestle with what God thinks about such things and why he would think that way. As we begin our second week of looking at masculinity and this week femininity, my desire is to move closer and closer into the heart and into the mind of God as we think about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And last week I suggested that masculinity is the call of God upon men to gladly assume sacrificial responsibility. This sacrificial responsibility is characterized by leadership, by protection, and by provision. And I really didn't get a chance to really flesh out the protection and provision part as thoroughly as I would have liked last week, But sacrificial responsibility 
meted out through leadership, through protection, and through provision. Now, this doesn't mean that women cannot lead. It doesn't mean that women cannot protect or cannot provide. But it does mean that for men to act like men, which the scripture calls us to, they should gravitate towards those roles and assume them whenever needed. Okay? So if there's a hard decision to be made in your marriage where there's a man and a woman, well, the buck stopper is the man. He will gladly assume that sacrificial responsibility. The man will rise up and say, okay, this is what we will do. Where there's leadership to be assumed, the man should take it. If there's more income that's needed in the household, it should be the man that says, okay, I'll sacrifice some sleep and pick up some more hours if that's what's required. So let me make another general point on gender that I wasn't able to make last week. It's something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He says this, Does not nature itself teach, us, teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. According to Kevin DeYoung, Paul is making two universal statements about gender. Number one, it isn't right for men to act like women. That's one of the things he's saying in there. And number two, society influences the norms of masculinity, masculine and feminine expression. That's true. Society does influence the norms of how masculinity and femininity get expressed. Let me give you an example. Wearing the color pink for men, right? Or maybe another one, whether or not men should open the door for women. Or perhaps another one, should men stand up when a woman enters the room to honor her, right? These are kind of cultural expressions of masculinity or femininity. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not pink is masculine or feminine. It actually doesn't. That is decided by society. And as long as they are not in violation of Scripture, there should not be any crossover. So in American culture, let me break that down. It is generally acceptable for men to wear a pink shirt, but not a pink dress. Right? Scripture would say it is okay to wear a pink shirt, but it's not okay to wear a pink dress because this is culturally designated for females to do, right? The Bible actually doesn't say men should not wear dresses, or maybe it does. I mean, maybe one of you guys will come out to me like, well, there's this verse in Leviticus. No, I don't think the Bible actually says men shall not wear dresses, right? But we would actually say culture has assigned dresses to females, and culture has assigned not wearing dresses to males, right? We're probably all in agreement with that. And therefore, because those cultural norms are scripturally sensible to us, right? We would look at that and say, yeah, based on what we know about scripture and what it says about masculinity and femininity, yeah, 
Women should wear dresses. Not only dresses, but women, if someone's going to wear a dress, it should be a woman. And if someone's not going to wear a dress, it should be a man. And those things shouldn't cross over. We shouldn't act like women as men, and men should not act like women. Um, did I say that right, by the way? You guys get the point. So we would say that these cultural appropriations are good expressions of biblical principles, right? However, the impact of feminism on our culture is actually pressing the issue a little bit. It suggests, I'm sorry, it's suggesting that it is an offensive idea that men should act only as men and that women should act only as women. You guys get what I'm saying there? That's an offensive idea. That's closed-minded. That's oppressive for men just to act like men and women just to act like women. Today, women are liberated because they can act just like a man and even prove to do so more effectively. Not only women can act like men, but we'll show you we can do it better. And that is equated to liberation, to freedom for women. And this has carried over not only to boys wearing dresses, but equality also demands that women take on the roles and the likes of police officers, firefighters, and serve in the military, which have traditionally been positions that are culturally appropriated for men, and with good reason. So when we go to the movies and we witness attractive females running around in skin-tight outfits doing incredible sequences of martial arts, detonating bombs, firing guns, kicking some major tail, even with nunchucks, all to protect helpless males, it should be jarring to us. And by the way, if you like the Lego movies, there's much to like about those movies, right? But I'm going to suggest that when we come across these scenes, they should be like, whoa. It's almost like, as I thought about this, and you guys will maybe think this is overstated, but imagine all of a sudden, boom, there's the scene changes and everyone just doesn't have clothes on. Right? You'd walk out of the movie theater and you'd be like, ah, oh, we got to debrief that. Like, what just happened in there? It may not be on that level, quite that level, but on that trajectory, I think when we see those types of scenes, there's, I think, a warrant for, uh, let's process what we just saw. And let's line that up with what God says and how does God feel about that? And let me explain why a little bit more as we kind of start to whittle down and, and define what biblical femininity is and how God thinks about it. So this brings us to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And if we can define womanhood, if we go off of kind of the definition that we use for men, for, man, for man, manhood to gladly assume sacrificial responsibility, we could say perhaps true womanhood is woman's response to God to gladly assume helping service. And it is marked by nurturing, gentleness, and quietness. 
So perhaps we could say that the bullseye of biblical femininity is the glad assumption of helping. And it's marked by nurturing. It's marked by, what did I say? Gentleness. Marked by caring and quietness. And I'll unpack this a little bit and flesh it out. And let me point out two proofs for these things, if I can. One is in creation and one is in scripture. So let's start with creation. How is our understanding of femininity, and by extension, masculinity, how is this evident within creation? How does creation speak to what femininity is? We can say that masculine and feminine function are self-evident within creation. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And that's speaking to the character of God. God in his character is clearly perceived. But we could say, yes, in creation, what God intends, what God has revealed, what God has designed is perceptible through creation. We can look at creation itself and gain a sense of, ah, oh, I think this is what he's thinking with men. And I think this is what he's thinking with women. That's why I read that verse. And then to break it down a little bit more, there's perhaps two intuitions that are rooted in creation. And I get this from a podcast that I listen to. It's good to be a man. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. I would like to quote this guy, but I don't even know his name. So I can't quote him, but I don't want to plagiarize him. Right? I looked on the podcast. I couldn't discover who was the one who was actually speaking. But he suggests that there's two intuitions that are kind of just built into every person. And as we look at creation, we can kind of deduce and we can kind of perceive what God has intended for males and females. Number one intuition, he says, function follows form. This is what he says. Men are designed for protecting and providing, while women are designed for nurturing and caring. This, self, this is self-evident by virtue of creation and the makeup of the male body and the female body. God has made us to intuit our functions from our forms. The reason the Bible is not explicit on this point is because it assumes we already know it innately. We only have to be willing to notice it and not suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God created men with strong muscles and agonistic instincts, combative, polemical, critical, controversial disputations. And he created women with weaker muscles and conciliatory instincts. So that's what he says about function follows form. Essentially, his point is, gee, when you look at the way a female body is made, and when you look at the way that a male body is made, there's something we can tell. Men are stronger physically, which is kind of uh, in line with protecting. And women are, believe it or not, have, they have a womb. <laughs> they can grow kids. And that is in line with nurturing, right, and helping. 
So that's his point there. And number two, he says, it is wrong to make a thing serve the opposite of its natural function. A woman is called to help, to nurture, and to give life. The name Eve in Hebrew is literally to breathe or to live. Whether a woman bears children or not isn't the point. The point is that, generally speaking, a female body is physically designed with this form, and therefore their function aligns to things associated with helping, with giving life and nurturing it along. We also see that when God cursed, he did so to address man and woman's defining functions. For Eve, it was childbearing. For Adam, it was managing the earth and providing for his family. When we see a woman bearing the sword or engaging in combat, it inverts their natural function. Even if, it, even if they did have the disposition and physique for it, their very nature is to create and nurture life, not to threaten it and end it. So that's, his, or that's one thing that we could look at, evidence in creation. A second thing that we can look at as we define femininity is evidence in Scripture. What does the Bible itself say about this directly? And the most obvious place that we can go to to begin developing a theology of this is in Genesis 2 and 3, where Eve is called a helper. We read that in Genesis 2. And our modern ears, perhaps not these particular ears, but generally speaking, our modern ears will inevitably hear helper and think of it to be as subservient. And that's not at all what's going on. In fact, this cannot be the case. Because in Scripture, God tells us that he fulfills the role of a helper, right? God is called our helper, Hebrews 13, 6. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So it's not possible. I mean, we, could never, we would never say, oh, God is subservient to me. He ranks lower than me. <laughs> that's ridiculous. God is our helper, so that's not at all the idea that we would suggest when we think that women take on the role of helper. And in a parallel way, I want to suggest this, that as God's people need the help of God, and God so graciously provides that, so men need the help of women. Right? And I know we should maybe be careful not to put our need a mankind's need of women on par with mankind's need of God, right? But then again, what would we say if God created a whole nation full of men and populated the earth with men to start off creation? <laughs> How long would that humanity last before it eventually died out and wasn't able to reproduce? So in a real way, <laughs> women are needed, Right? And as we think about creation, creation needs sun and moon, you see. It needs water and land. It needs fruit and seed, male and female. It's incomplete without both. So there's evidence in Scripture. There's evidence in creation that this is the direction it's moving. And I want to talk about, for the rest of the time here, how do women help, right? So if we can uh, address that, is the glad assumption of helping. doesn't mean that's all they do, but in this situation, just like for men to gladly assume sacrificial responsibility, where it's needed, they gravitate towards that. Where it's needed, women gravitate towards that. So the question is, how does this get fleshed out? How does this look? How does this get expressed? 
Let me suggest three different ways that women fulfill the role as helpers. Number one, women nurture masculinity in men. Now, uh, you know, this is kind of, so I got this idea essentially from John Piper to start off with. So I want to quote, I want to read one of his quotes just because I don't really want to put my foot in my mouth at all up here. So if you have a problem with this idea, um, you can contact John Piper about it. I'm sure he'd, he'd love to talk to you about it. But anyway, women nurture masculinity in men. This is what he says. One of the unique things about women is that they are called by God to receive from men and honor men and support the leadership and the protection and the provision of godly men appropriately according to their different roles. And the reason why I say this last phrase, according to their different roles, is that as a woman navigates her life, if she is married, she's got a husband. She has got a pastor. She has got male friends who are the husbands of her female friends. She has got colleagues at work and so on. All these males fulfill very different roles in her life. And I don't mean that she receives and honors and supports leadership, protection, and provision from all of them in the same way. The dynamic and the dance of gender relations are different for every relationship. But there is something that God has put into men to be leaders and protectors and providers and something that God has put into women to love that, to delight in that, to honor that, to come alongside of that, to use all of their manifold gifts to advance the cause of Christ through that so that when they are together, they are complementing each other and the beauty of God is displayed more fully. That's a great description. The modern sensibilities perhaps would cry for equality and that cry for equality would perhaps find us archaic and offensive, but it really isn't brothers and sisters. The Bible calls this true freedom and liberation for women when they function according to their call that God has laid out for them. And here is how. When women nurture masculinity in men around them, she is nurturing true masculinity in them. And what is true masculinity? Sacrificial responsibility. Do you see that? So when women function as helpers and nurturers, they not only function as God intended them to, but they use their beauty and they use their influence to help men function as God intended them to. And you know who the winners are in this situation? Women are. They essentially get treated better by men who will lead. And it provides a place for them to function more fully in their role as females. And I, I love this because really it displays, it really does display the glory of God, the goodness of God. And you see how both masculinity and femininity really can't exist on their own. They are in tension with each other and a positive tension, a tension that holds everything in balance. You see, when, when true womanhood is in place, it enables true manhood. And when true manhood is in place, it enables true womanhood. 
They really can't function independently from each other. They're interplaying all the time. There's always this positive tension that's going on. They anchor each other. And therefore, you can't really look at femininity without really learning something about masculinity. Do you see that? And you can't really look at masculinity without really learning something about femininity. They truly were made to work in conjunction with each other, whether you're married or not. The reality is, males and females occupy this earth. And there are all kinds of differing relationships that occur. And the beauty of God is put on display when both of them function within their spheres and grounds the other, it brings out the best in both. All to the glory of God. You see, feminism doesn't help women. That's the reality. And it's sad. It destroys men. And as a consequence, it actually destroys women too. Do you realize that? When men lose, women also lose. And vice versa. When women lose, men will lose too. The whole house of cards comes crashing down. And that's why both are very much needed. And both must live in tension, a positive tension with each other and ground each other in a biblical view of truth. Feminism doesn't help women because it doesn't nurture godly masculinity in men. It destroys godly masculinity in men. And when godly masculinity in men is destroyed, it will backfire on women, too. That's the reality of it. It's like a car. I put it in my notes here, the car illustration. As I think about this, you know, do you guys take care of your cars? Do you put oil in it? Do you, like, uh, change your tires, rotate them, get it looked... You wouldn't say, oh, that's so oppressive to help my car. I'm not going to serve my car. I'm not going to help my car. Well, no, the reality is when you change the oil in your car, it will take you wherever you want to go. You serve your car. You help your car along. Your car, in turn, helps you. It actually spells liberation. You see that? Now, you can do with that as, as, you, as you please, but just know all illustrations have their, have their limitations, all right? So hopefully it illustrates a point helpfully. Okay, second, women nurture masculinity, men. Women nurture life and children that they bear. God told Adam to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth with kids. He kind of needed some help with that. He wasn't going to be able to get this done on his own. He needed help. How is he going to be able to do this? Well, the female body, right, she has the, uh, the opportunity, the ability to bear children. And only the female body. You know, when I was a kid, I remember seeing the Cosby show. Did you guys ever watch the Cosby show? And there was this one episode. I was, I was young enough. I wasn't quite sure what to make of this. But uh, Cliff Huxtable, right? Remember Cliff Huxtable and all the other guys? They came down the stairs and they had their bellies filled with pillows as if they looked pregnant. You know, and it was kind of like, you know, the laughter in the background and all that was going off the, off the hook. And I was young enough to, actually, I was sitting there by myself and I'm thinking, is that, is that possible for a man to get pregnant? And then I thought, no, but what, maybe there's something like a doctor could do or something like that. The reality is, if you guys are in doubt like I was, it's not possible, right, for a man to get pregnant. It is not possible 
for a man to bear a child, to nurture it to life, to provide life for it. Women's bodies are set up to do that. I don't know if you noticed that. But even more so, women have nurturing instincts. They have gentleness that makes women much more apt to nurture children along with patience. And if there's, you know, a dispute about, (laughs) well, when you think about, especially younger on with kids, it always seemed to work better with my wife to respond to calls in the night or late at night or when there was gentleness needed, she was always better at that than I was by nature. And a woman's nurturing expression isn't limited to her own children. It starts there for sure. It's definitely a a key part of it. But many children need to be held, to be cared for, to loved. And it's not just children either. Women have the calling and the ability to fill a thousand gaps, those who are hurting, right? Those who are weak, those who are broken, require a gentle touch. And as I think about that, when I think about the gaps filled by women, you know, I thought about this. It's a much like uh, society without women would be a lot like a single guy's apartment. I saw, you know, I don't, I don't usually look at Facebook, you know, because I have enough, you know, I don't need any help being more depressed and, you know, less excited about how other people have it all together and, and I really don't. <laughs> so I kind of stay away from Facebook usually. Um, but I was actually scrolling through um, on, this one, on this one feed, right? And I saw this picture, saw this picture of, um, of an apartment. It was a male's apartment, a guy's apartment. And there was just a couch, like a love seat, just sitting there in the middle of the room. <laughs> and, uh, and it looked like one of those like, love seat or couches that should have one of those little legs on the bottom, you know, one of those things that keeps it a couple of inches off the ground. But it wasn't on there, it was just sitting flat on the floor. And then there was a little lamp right next to it. There was some food or some, like, drink bottles next to it. And then there was just a TV right across on the wall just sitting on the floor, right? And that was it. That was all that there was in the room. (laughs) And then the caption said something along the lines of, yeah, men can live this way. As if, like, they do. They live this way. (laughs) Single men. And I think back to my college days. I think about that, and I think, yeah, there's a lot of guys that would actually kind of sort of live that way. And I got to thinking, you know what? A, a world without women would essentially kind of be like a microcosm of this apartment building without women. There's a thousand different ways that women bring life. They have plants. I mean, how many, how many single guys do you know that would have plants in their apartment? You know, plants give off oxygen. They give off life. Women are life-giving. So in that way, women beautify things They nurture things, they help things along in a thousand different ways. And um, maybe a world without women would be much like an apartment building without women. Okay, number three, women reveal true beauty through a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, a quiet spirit isn't suggesting that women must stay silent. All right, so if you happen to be outgoing as a woman, if you happen to be gregarious, if you happen to like telling jokes, if you like to talk, if you like to lead things, so on and so forth. It's not like, it's not like you're out of luck. Sorry. You're just, you have to kill all of that. You have to squash all of that in the name of Christianity. No. 
I don't think that's what I'm saying at all, not even close. What is a quiet spirit, a gentle and quiet spirit in Scripture? I think that Scripture suggests that a quiet spirit means that a woman won't turn to her appearance for strength and exploit the weaknesses of men. I think that's what a quiet spirit is getting at. You see, men tend to be physically larger and stronger than women, and women's physical beauty is much more captivating than that of a man. And there's a reason, there's a reason why the female body has been turned into an industry. And do you realize that our world links beauty with power? And it teaches, I'm sorry, it links beauty with power, and it teaches women to use their beauty to get what they want. And God, you see, also links beauty with power, but he talks about a much different kind of beauty, and he talks about a much different kind of power and influence that is godly. The Bible talks about inner beauty, while the world emphasizes external beauty. And not all women can attain to the world's standard of beauty. That is true. Not all women can attain to that. But all women everywhere at all times always have the opportunity to attain to God's standard of beauty by putting their faith in Christ and learning to surrender their hearts to God. And this is also true for men, because men also abide by a standard of beauty. But it's definitely true for women. Not all women can attain to the world's standard of beauty, but all women can and have the opportunity to attain to God's standard of beauty. Peter tells us that true beauty is inner beauty, and it's marked by a quiet heart. And this beauty also has great power. Let me explain this. To appreciate what Peter is saying, you have to understand that women were given the ability by God to influence the allegiance of men where the Roman society would have called women to simply be completely controlled by men. Do you understand that Peter, in 1 Peter 3, is where I'm drawing this from? The context is, there's an unbelieving husband. What should a woman do in this case to influence him? And the reality is, Peter talks to the woman in this case. In 1 Peter 3, he talks to the woman, which is actually in itself totally earth-shattering because the Roman Empire would not have dignified women enough to even address them. The way that it would have worked in Roman society Rome ensured allegiance to the state through men. Whomever the man worshipped, so went his family. If the man worshipped the state, and that was accepted, that was what it was expected, if the man worshipped the state, so would his wife, and so would his children. And that is the way that Rome organized itself, and that is the way that Rome ensured its power and its control over its citizens. Do you see? When Peter suggested that women can influence the salvation of men, 
he also suggested that women could change the allegiance of their husband from the state to Jesus Christ. And do you know what that would mean? It would upend the entire Roman fabric of life. Do you see why the Bible was so offensive and so threatening in the first century? Do you realize that? It was so threatening and so offensive to their sensibilities because Peter is talking to women. And he's saying, hey, you know what, women? By a gentle and quiet spirit, you can lead your husband not to bow down to the state of Rome, but to bow down to Jesus Christ. And if women were successful in that, and Peter says that's the way to be successful in that, that would mess the whole operation up. Do you see that? That's incredible. So Rome that ruled with this iron fist, Peter is suggesting that femininity is actually more powerful than this beast of Rome. That real power resides in a woman who fears God. True beauty is actually expressed in the quiet heart who trusts God and isn't looking to her appearance to exploit and to manipulate and to get what she wants. I think this is incredible. It really is. So, to connect it, to bring it home, let me suggest this. Jesus Christ has come into the world to confront sin and to restore order to God's creative purposes. And yes, feminism is a response to the ways that men have abused their strength. That has happened in the past. And women, I would suggest, must learn to trust Christ in his triumph over the grave in order to really entrust their femininity to his wisdom. When we are confronted, when women are confronted, when all of us, even men too, are confronted with this notion of beauty, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that's what true beauty is? And do we really believe that's where true power lies? in a gentle and quiet spirit who fears God. Women, do you really believe that? Or do you believe the world's notion that true power, true influence comes from having the right body or having the right look or being beautiful by earthly standards? And I would suggest this. That if you cannot trust Christ in his salvation, you will not be able to trust that God's version of beauty is more satisfying to you and, I'm sorry, you won't be able to believe that God's version of beauty is more satisfying to you or his call to helping is more liberating than the nunchuck sexy woman who dominates. So there's a direct connection between trusting in Christ for salvation and the way that works itself out is truly trusting that God's version of femininity is truly liberating and truly satisfying. And when God sees this perversion of femininity, I think 
he spits it out of his mouth because men should not act like women and women should not act like men. And therefore, we should too. Let's pray. Lord God, um, help us with this message. I know this touches on some deep issues for all of us. These are things that many of us care very deeply about. And I just ask, Lord, if nothing else, it would help us to start a conversation that would be helpful and clarifying. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would please help us to sort through these things. I pray, Father, for the women that are listening to this. We ask, Lord, that they would not lay claim to the claims of this world upon their femininity, but, Lord, that they would trust in you for what true beauty is and true femininity really looks like. So please go before us. Please strengthen us. Please help us. And if there's any way that we need clarification on these things, if there's any way we need correction around these things, I ask God that you would show us. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.